This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our distinguished guest today is Gary S. Becker, who is a university professor in the Department of Economics and Sociology and professor in the Graduate School of Business at the University of Chicago. Uh, he is the winner of many distinguished uh, awards, including in 1967, he won the John Bates Clark Medal, and in 1992, the Nobel Memorial Prize in Economic Sciences, and in 2007, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Professor Becker, welcome to Berkeley. Glad to be here. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in a very small coal mining town, so Pottsville, Pennsylvania, so it's not too far from Philadelphia. We lived there six or seven years, um, and then we moved to New York City. And so I went to most of my schooling, elementary school and high school, was in, in Brooklyn, New York, actually. And, and looking back, how did your parents shape your thinking about the world? Well, my parents weren't very educated. Neither one went past the eighth grade. Uh, my father, though, was interested in—he was a businessman, uh, reasonably successful small businessman— and um, he was interested in world events. So we had a lot of discussions in the household. Not many books in the house, but um, a lot of discussions about politics and, and things of that type, which definitely had an influence on my interest in social and political and economic issues. And, and he was quite an entrepreneurial type, even as a young man? Very much so, yes. Uh, he, he, he actually, he, his family moved to Montreal when he was six years old. When he was 16 years old, he left his parents and came to the United States on his own to start a business. I mean, can you imagine that nowadays, a 16-year-old starting a business on their own? It was a retail business. He, he told me he was ignorant of a lot of things, like insurance and so on, he didn't know. And so for the rest of his life, he was in business, um, his own business. He, he, basically, after that, he never worked for anybody else. He um, went into a lot of different businesses in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, up New York State, where he was near Niagara Falls originally, and then in New York City. And, and what about the influence of your mother? Was, was she uh, a, a, a party to your great interest in society and, and the problems of social Well, my mother, life? I mean, she was a great mother in a sense, a very caring and the like. She she didn't have as, as the broad interest that my father did in, in general events. Um, so I think I got a lot from my mother, but it was more intuitive things. She had a very intuitive, good in psychological insight into people, things of that type. And I, and I think I inherited some of that and you know, acquired some of it from being around her. Uh, before you went to college, high school teachers, any that, that particularly influenced you? Two good teachers. I mean, there are others, but two I remember. I had an English teacher. She um, had, was loved literature, poetry and literature. And I wasn't much of it. I was a more science-oriented type of student. But she gave me a feeling of love for literature and poetry. And, um, and while I, I can't say I'm a, a huge reader of, you know, 
uh, fiction or poetry anymore, but I, I still have that love for it. And so she was great. And um, then I had a math teacher. And he you know, was not a great mathematician, but he loved mathematics. Um, and I was on the math team. And um, uh, I got on in a funny way, but I, I won't go into that. And I did well on the math team. And then I went to Princeton. I did extremely well at Princeton my first year. I came back at the end of the first year. I visited the high school. And he asked me, what am I going to do? And I said, I'm going to major in economics. But I did, you know, I came in first in my class. He wasn't interested. I came in first in my class. He said, you're not going to mathematics? And I said, well, economics uses some math. But it didn't, didn't console him. So he, he was great. I mean, and um, those two teachers, I think, really had an important influence. I mean, love of the subject matter. That's, to me, that's what makes a great teacher. Somebody who loves the subject matter and can convey that to students. Those two teachers certainly did that. Uh, at Princeton, you, you uh, reinforced your, your love for mathematics while you chose economics as a profession? I sort of did both fields, math and, and economics. Um, I, I, Princeton has and still has to this day one of the great math departments. I took a lot of mathematics, including graduate mathematics at Princeton, had some great teachers. And um, I didn't know it was going to be that useful in economics, but uh, it turned out to be. But I did it because I really liked mathematics. Um, economics uh, appealed to me because I felt I could, I could do uh, more technical stuff, which I, I thought I would be pretty good at, but deal with social problems. That's what attracted me. I wanted to deal with social problems, and um, this was the way I thought I could, I could do it uh, best. So combination seemed appealing and, um, uh, and and turned out to be, I think, a good choice on my part. What is your thinking about what drew you to social problems? Was it that in, in, in your past you had acquired a sense of, of kind of the bigger picture than just narrow technical economic analysis? Well, I, I mean, I, in my family, my high school, people were debating that, I mean, in those days there were a lot of communists and I was on the left. I was, never, I was always anti-communist. My father was anti-communist, but he certainly, would you, you would say, was on, on the left. Um, debating all types of su uh, problems. So uh, I, that was conveyed to me as well, and I began to be interested in these problems, feeling I want to do something you know, important for society. And when I f first started taking economics, I almost left it in my, in my senior year because it seemed to me it didn't deal with important problems. Sociology, for example, did. And I tried thinking about sociology, but I finally decided it was a little too hard um, in terms of the sociology that I read. So I gave it up. I did make a serious thinking about switching to sociology. Um, but uh, when I went to graduate school, still being uneasy that economics didn't deal with social problems, I had some teachers. Um, several teachers there who, who showed me that you could use economics as a device to understand social problems. And so that, that's really where my career went after that. And you did your graduate work in Chicago. In Chicago. And, and who did you work with there uh, uh, mainly? Well, the most important influence on my thing was Milton Friedman. I mean, there's no question about that. You know, he's a, always been a controversial figure, but as a teacher, Absolutely outstanding teacher. Absolutely outstanding. I mean, he mesmerized all the students. He was such a, a great teacher. He, um, 
And just in terms of conveying that economics was a powerful tool, that it wasn't a game you're playing with other intellectuals, it was a tool of analysis. Then I had two other teachers who were important to me, uh, T.W. Schultz, who, uh, like Friedman, won the Nobel Prize eventually. Um, he was interested in broader issues, development issues, and uh, he started out as an agricultural economist, got interested in development, human capital, became you know, a very important economist. And then uh, a labor economist, Greg Lewis, who, who showed also how in labor economics you can work on important questions, and technically, he was very good technically. So these, these teachers, I think, had a, a big influence on me. Um, that's why I always felt maybe I would have had equally great teachers if I went elsewhere. I thought of going to Harvard instead of Chicago at the time, but I, I think I made the right choice, and uh, I, uh, it was a, a really stimulating department. And and uh, what did you do your dissertation on? Racial discrimination, the economics of discrimination. And, and this would have been what year? Well, I finished my dissertation in 1955, so that's 68 years ago or so. Um, published a book on it in 1957. Um, so at that time, there was essentially no work in economics on, on racial discrimination. I got interested in it, and a lot of people thought that's not economics. I mean, and it wasn't. If it wasn't for the support of Friedman, Schultz, and Lewis, the three names I've mentioned, and maybe some others, I might have changed the subject. But they said, "Well, it's different, but it's interesting," um, and they supported me intellectually, uh, and uh, and uh, that made a big difference. And I went around lecturing to places like Harvard and elsewhere, and they were very skeptical, MIT, whether this was real economics. Um, but the support of my teachers made, made enormous difference to my willingness to stay with the subject. And then eventually it became a, a, you know, a, a very big field because of public policy changes, like the Brown versus the Board of Education decision, 54, I guess, and other you know, civil rights movement, so on. And finally, economists woke up a little bit and said, well, we have this discrimination right in the middle of us, not against African-Americans, women, and so on. We should be, we have a contribution to make to it. And, and, and what exactly did you do in the dissertation? You were taking economic uh, analysis and saying, well, what are the costs? What are the, uh, uh, what price do we pay for discrimination at, at all levels? What I try to do, say, well, I assume that some people have, have, have prejudices against different groups, uh, but that their prejudices have to interact with an economic system, let's say a market system, and a competition, uh, for example, or monopoly, and how do their prejudices interact with the forces in the market? And I show that just knowing what people's prejudices are aren't anywhere sufficient to let us understand how much observed discrimination you see in the marketplace. So I developed an analysis of the interaction between people's prejudices or preferences and how markets, different types of markets, including governmental markets, operate to try to get a, a, the end result would be how much observed discrimination do we see. Let's say if you have blacks and whites of equal productivity, how much less would the blacks be earning, for example? That's what I tried to do. Mm -hmm. And and in, in other words, so it, it was a, a different kind of argument, a different sort of cut into what was becoming recognized as a, 
uh, a universal issue for the country, but on moral grounds. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, it was a different cut. It was an analysis. Now, what I, you know, some people picked it up on some moral issue and say, well, Becker shows that if you have competition, you, they claim you eliminate discrimination. I didn't claim that. I said competition can affect and generally reduce the amount of observable discrimination, but if people's preferences are strong enough, I mean, it went into a bunch of different issues, uh, you, you still can, can have it. So um, uh, it, it, it fed into some of the moral arguments, but it was an analysis. I, there are no recommendations in the book. It's an analysis of, of the problem. I, I, it, it fed my conviction in general that in order to understand what policies we should take, you have to first understand how people respond to different things. And so in order to understand discrimination and what, how we might, what buttons we should try to push politi uh, say political process, we have to understand how the people are going to react. And that's where my analysis, I think, has been useful. Now, is the, is the beauty of economic al analysis that it draws out uh, or it leads to a better understanding of issues that that are out there, in essence, breaking them down uh, and, and bringing a clarity that, that actually can become a tool for society to choose to act on the issue. Yeah, no, I think there's no question that's what ec uh, economics helps one do. Economics really, in a nutshell, uh, deals with how people respond to incentives. And as you change various types of incentives, not monetary incentives, but non-monetary incentives of all types, how people will respond to that. Um, other fields deal with that too, but that's what certainly e economists concentrate on. And if you, if you think of you know designing a public policy of some type, you're always going to affect people's incentives, no matter what you do. Um, you have Social Security retirement, and you affect well, what age are they going to retire, and so on. You have disability program, and you know. Well, what determines if I'm eligible for for a disability? Um, earned income ta tax credit, which we have in the United States, uh, what determines how much I can get as a tax credit, and that'll be a function of how much I earn. That'll affect my behavior. So all public policies affect incentives, and so one has to. It's, it's necessary to understand these responses, I think, before one can intelligently discuss public policy questions. Uh, before we talk about economic analysis and, and further, I, I want to detour here for a second because uh, w you must have had a lot of self-confidence uh, even as a young scholar, uh, a, a rebellious streak to actually carve out a domain which was uh, in the first instance not by your mentors but by the discipline really dismissed out of hand, well, we don't do this stuff. Yeah, well, it's an interesting question. I thought about that a lot. I mean, there are a number of factors that were involved. The, the support of people I enormously respected, um, that they thought I was doing interesting work. If they didn't support me, I mean, I might have, you know, felt, well, I'm really on, on the wrong track. Um, the second thing was, it was a certain, I mean, I, I was always a shy person, particularly when I was younger. Uh, so I wasn't one of these aggressive persons who, who went out there and was talking about everything they knew. It wasn't my nature. But I had a self-confidence. I said, well, look, I, I, I would tell myself, 
It's so obvious the discrimi discrimination. This is how I talk to myself. It's so obvious that discrimination is such an important topic um, that economists don't see it. I mean, they eventually they're going to have to see it. That's what I, I, I try to convince myself on. And that, along with the support of a small number of people, uh, encouraged me to go on. If I didn't have that support, I, I'd, I think I would have given up on it. So I think the self-confidence for me wouldn't have been enough, but I did have that self-confidence. I was willing, I had a thick enough skin, I was willing to take the uh, criticisms of the establishment, you know, the, uh, the, the Harvard, the Chicago, the Berkeley, the Stanford people who didn't think much of it. But here and there, there was somebody who wrote, you know, I got some very good favorable reviews of my book. A professor at Stanford wrote a very good review. Professor at UCLA wrote a very good review of the book. So there were people who, who supported me, and that, that was enough for me. I felt uh, it's, gonna, it's going to be important. It may take five years, ten years, but it will be important. I, I'm curious about Friedman because, you know, we, we think of him as this great conservative intellectual, but, but you're really saying that as a, as a teacher and as a mentor, uh, he was somebody who could let a student run with an idea, uh, even if he didn't quite yet see all of its implications. Well, Friedman was not a conservative intellectually. You know, he's, and he always would say he was not a conservative. He was a free market person, believed in freedom. But intellectually, he was not a conservative. He was open to ideas. Now, he was a tremendous critic, and he would knock you down. He knocked me down on this subject and a lot of others really hard. So he was a tremendous critic. But uh, I'll give you one example of that to show you he was not a conservative. Um, when I was just, was just beginning on my topic, I wrote three pages out. And he was then spending a year in Cambridge, England. And so I sent it to him. And it, he, he answered me a month later, and a two-page letter, very detailed. First page and a half, he was telling me everything that was wrong with what I was doing. I mean, this is not, you can't read it. The last paragraph he said, but you have some good ideas in here. You should develop them further. Now, both parts affected me. The, the tremendous criticisms. I mean, I couldn't touch the subject for a couple of weeks after that. And I, literally, I didn't look at it for a couple of weeks. But then I kept saying, well, but he said there are good ideas in there. I, I, so he agrees with me. So Freeman was, was like that. Um, he was not conservative intellectually. He was very open intellectually. Um, you have to pass a tough barrage of questions and so on. But he didn't say, well, this is not what we do or, you know, just close his mind to it. So that's why he was such a great teacher. Um, and people, you know, people who had very liberal views still found him a great teacher. And they'd come to him, discuss a problem, and he'd be very helpful to them. This leads me to the question, because students watch this program, what, what looking back at your career, uh, what are the skills that really one has to develop if one is going to do important work in economics? Math, obviously. Well, you need some technical skills, yeah. math, statistics, and so on. Very important quantitative skills to deal with data and so on. So those are important in modern economics, uh, more important than when I started in the field. Um, very important. Um, uh, to do important work in any field, you have to have a, a thick skin. You can't be so concerned about criticism and when that you're, you're differing from everybody else um, that 
you, you immediately, you want to just run with the pack. Um, and unfortunately, that's where most students and most people are. They, they don't want to uh, subject, subject themselves to intense criticism to be laughed at, which I was at a number of occasions. Um, so how do, how do people develop that? I don't know how do people develop that. But I, I think that's important to do. And if you hit on something, to have confidence. If you are confident in it, to try to push it further. And because the professions are always, often wrong about things. I mean, uh, the elders in a field, they've learned some material. So they clearly have an interest in preserving that. I, I don't blame them. So you have to fight. You have to fight to overthrow the, those ideas. But So you've got to be willing to, to fight. Uh, so technical skills are, are necessary, but it's not sufficient to do important work. Um, I think you need this other aspect, which, uh, you know, it's called originality, but it, it, it partly, and in good part, is, is a, a, a toughness, an intellectual toughness. You're willing to take the heat from people. And as I've read biographies of people, in science and so on, who've done great work, uh, I notice how usually their ideas were not well received. You know, they had a fight for them, but they were confident in, in their ideas. So, as students, I would tell students, no matter what field you're in, um, yeah, get the technical training necessary for your field, uh, but that's not going to be sufficient to do uh, major work. You have, you have to have the ideas, but you also have the confidence to see those ideas through, even if a lot of people. Uh, People you respect sometimes don't think they're worth that much. So, so what 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 are the building blocks for the for for obtaining the vision to see alternative paths? I mean, that must be key in in uh, creativity. I want I want to go there, yeah. even if the discipline's not there. Well, it's very tough. I mean, and, and we, you know, there's a lot of literature written on creativity. But most of it, you read it, it's not a, a uh, toolbox for learning how to be creative. Uh, and, uh, and I wish I knew uh, what, it, what it takes uh, to be. Um, you know, people have said, well, Thornstein Veblen said, well, he was, he was fortunate because he grew up feeling uh, marginal in society, and so therefore he looked at things more objectively. And maybe there's something to, to that. Uh, um, I don't know, you know, people like Isaac Newton and Albert Einstein felt particularly marginal to society. So I'm not sure how applicable it is to some of the, uh, Charles Darwin, uh, some of the really great achievers in, in, in different fields. Um, but uh, I, I would probably confess I don't know the answer to that question. Um, it, not easy, but I do know one important ingredient is a willingness to go against the grain. That I do know. Now, you can go against the grain and have a stupid idea, too. I mean, you know, most ideas are wrong. You've know, you got you to recognize that research is a risky activity. An important secret is know when to abandon the bad ideas and to pursue the good ideas. There are a lot of people out there who have lots of ideas, but they don't know which ones to pursue, and they'll end up pursuing bad ideas. Now, what determines whether you pick the good things to pursue? I mean, I... I, I, I confess I don't know the answer to that question. 
Now, uh, you are at Chicago, and, and one of the most important schools of economic thinking is at Chicago, the Chicago School. And, and uh, when, when, did, when did the Chicago School emerge? What, was it already in existence when you were a graduate student there, or did it develop over time? Because I think it's important to understand how the building blocks are put in place because there must uh, be support in a community of scholars when, when you're, you're carving out these innovative paths and, 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 and creating a kind of a, an intellectual powerhouse community like Chicago. Well, it was there when I came. But one thing one has to understand about the Chicago School, it's evolved. Uh, it's not been a, a, a single message or a single point of view. So I would say it started probably in the late 1920s when two great economists came, came, came to Chicago by the name of Frank Knight and Jacob Viner, who people who would have won the Nobel Prize if they had the Nobel Prize for economics in those days. They were really both outstanding and major figures in the history of economic thought of the 20th century. They started it, and and there were other members of the school at the time. And Milton Friedman came, and he had an enormous influence on what went on, the monetarism that he was famous for. The free market view had really preceded him, but he because Viner, Knight, Henry Simons, other major figures had already been promoters of, of free market ideas. But Friedman certainly pushed them further and, and deeper in many respects than the predecessors and pushed it in other directions like monetary, monetary sort of activities. And then it evolved, well, let's say my, my work and others, and pushing economics into other areas it became part of the so-called Chicago School, and that became part of the Chicago School. So it's been an evolving uh, uh, system of thought, not a static system of thought. Usually, belief in private sector has been a part of it in all, in all its manifestations. But it's had a lot of other components of it. And yes, people on the outside, what's the Chicago School? They might mention 10 different things at the Chicago School. What it did have, and, uh, and in, in, in speaking to your point about a community of scholars, what it did have in that dimension, which I always thought was really crucial, that everybody believed in economics, that economics was a powerful tool. They may have gone in different directions, uh, like Bob Fogel did economic history, slavery, and the like, but he used economic tools. So he, he could communicate with us, and found, we found his work very interesting and exciting. Uh, other people uh, went into macroeconomics, extended the work Milton Friedman did. Um, uh, other people went into labor economics, or agricultural economics, development economics, but they all uh, had confidence that economics tools were valuable in understanding the reality of the world that they were talking about, and ultimately valuable for public policy issues. And if there's anything, single thing that held the school together more than anything else, then political views, not everybody believed in free markets, and certainly not everybody was conservative, for example. Uh, a lot of people weren't, but they all were confident in, in e economics as a tool of analysis. And I think um, that confidence enabled us to have a community, because nowadays a lot of fields like economics get, get, are so technical, you have, 
you have mathematical economists here and econometricians here and uh, uh, quantitative people here and so on. But we had a community. I felt a good economist should be able to talk to all, everybody. And that's what everybody uh, at Chicago thought at the time. And that's more than anything else, I think, what made the Chicago School a community of scholars who had uh, conflict and so on, but had a common beliefs. I think without that common beliefs, you really can't have a, a community of scholars. So, so uh, it was a continuing conversation, and but it was a conversation that in in the end one could get feedback that was critical. So even among your established colleagues, people would say, "Well, it doesn't sound like a good idea to me." But but kind of a continuing exchange. Chicago was known economics at Chicago was known for really tough seminars and so on, workshops and seminars. Workshops, what we call the workshops, started at the university in the Department of Economics, at the University of Chicago, and the seminars are really tough. So people say everybody in Chicago thinks the same. Just attend a seminar in Chicago, and you'll find that it was never true. My day wasn't true. A lot of tough arguments. People stopped talking to each other. Yet they still have this common belief that economics is valuable. They went, you know, at different ways of of looking at it, and so. Um, the interactions were enormous, and that meant a lot of conflict, intellectual conflict, you know, and academics can, are sensitive a lot, and so some of them got really hurt uh, and didn't talk to each other. Uh, but it, it was a lot of conflict, so it was a common belief that these principles were important. How do you, you know, implement these principles to discuss interesting issues? People had a lot different views about that. And, and that w what's made the seminars we had so exciting that um, people we you know we get a speaker in the speaker would say something and then the arguments would be among the audience, <laughs> not a speaker. Sometimes uh, uh, when I've run these seminars, I would tell the speaker, "Look, uh, I, you're only a catalyst here," <laughs> and yeah, people would be arguing back and forth. Speaker is standing there trying to get a word in. So I think that was important. And and is this are these the characteristics of Chicago generally in other departments too, or are you just addressing economics? Yeah. Well, I don't know every department. Yeah. It was a characteristic, and still is for some of the departments I was associated with or had some knowledge about, like the law school, uh, for and still is at the law school. Sociology department certainly was uh, when I was active in, and I'm less active in sociology now. Certainly in the business schools, very much, very much. So these parts of the social sciences that I know, um, uh, and in, and in some link, we I run for a long time. I've run a seminar uh, on what's called rational choice in social sciences. I started it with a, a outstanding sociologist. His name was James Coleman. And um, had, he died, unfortunately, and I had several other partners. Now I have Richard Posner, a famous judge and, and legal scholar. And we get people from all parts of social sciences, and we have the same type of atmosphere there that we have in, in what I mentioned in economics. That, and so in that sense, I wouldn't say it's true in every department, but the departments that interact in these sorts of areas definitely is still true. As you go. Help our audience understand what rational choice is, uh, because there's a lot of confusion about it, but in a way it's a simple idea. Yeah, very simple idea. I mean, I mean in the simplest 
uh, way to put what rational choice is, that people, you know, consider alternatives and they make a decision given what limited resources they have and their, their preferences that uh, make them as, as, as much as they can anticipate given the uncertainty or as well off as possible. That's what rational choice theory in its very simplest uh, framework is. Now, the challenge in making a theory useful is to take that simple idea, and I think very fundamental idea, and put it in the context so you can actually derive implications about it, about behavior and, and even public policy. Uh, but if you want to know what the basis of rational choice is, that's simple. Uh, I, I like to give the example of, from the area of the family where I've worked a lot on. I say, well, what, what, are, we, what are we saying? And what we're saying is very common sense that people choose a mate uh, to match or marry because they think that person is going to make them happier better than they would be if, with anybody else that they have available now. And they, and, and they get divorced because they conclude that they can find maybe better being, being single or ma marrying somebody else as, as, as make them happier. That's, that's, what it, that's simply what it, it's saying. Now, it, when put in a, an analytical framework, it has implications, so it goes beyond common sense and gets implicated beyond common sense. But the fundamentals of rational choice theory, is, I think, is is attractive to people. And often people say, I explain it to somebody who's not against it, but that's so obvious. Well, it is obvious uh, at one level. The other level is when you make it into a tool of analysis, it, it leads to implications that often aren't that obvious. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the key here is not to let that analysis prevent you from broadening your understanding of all the other forces that are at work. So it's not just those rational choices, but also the broader context which are impacting those choices. Yeah. You put that in, you know, the advantage of this framework is it can, you can take this framework and apply it to a lot of different problems interacting with you know, public policy with institutions and so on, and, and get a whole system, uh, a worldview even out of it. And I think that's the great advantage. It gives you tremendous scope. Now, that doesn't mean it gives. It's a magic wand that you can wave and understand every problem in the world. I wish that were true. Uh, mo most of the problems, we, I, I would say, we don't understand. At least I, economists, for sure, don't understand, and I certainly don't understand. Uh, but it, it's a powerful tool that enables you, at least, to think about a lot of different problems, a, a tremendous variety, where other forces are at work, like Fogel's work on slavery, for example. That's what Fogel was doing in his work on slavery. Uh, the the rational choice and and the thinking at the uh, uh, at the Chicago School that, that we've talked about, it, it comes to conclusions about the virtues of markets uh, in comparison with the, the virtue of government. Talk a little about that because uh, the school is associated with the idea that, that free markets work best in ensuring the welfare of the, the general good. Well, rational choice analysis doesn't necessarily mean you'll end up with believing in free markets. You can have rational choice analysis and say, well, let's say you take the... Um, issue of global warming, that, you know, companies are rational and so on, but they're over-polluting. And so um, you're not leading to the optimal. You have to have some 
some controls over uh, pollution. Um, so, uh, but it, it does it does on the other hand lead you to believe that um, there are a lot of virtues in competition and so on, um, which is another foundation of, of much of economics that. You know, when you have competition, whether it's um, among auto companies or uh, high-tech companies or, or educational institutions like higher education in the United States, uh, competition uh, brings out good things that the, uh, because people are behaving, firms are behaving rationally in the sense I, I described it, and um, they're going to strive to improve their productivity and the like. I don't think there's any magic in why the U.S. has the best higher education system. I think what the crucial ingredient is that we have such a highly competitive uh, set of universities and colleges, private and public, that are competing <laughs> very hard for faculty, students, for funding, and the like. And I think that's brought out the best in the higher education in the United States. So uh, it doesn't always lead to free markets, but certainly um, there is some some. Uh, tendency, if you if you believe in rational choice, in, in a sense that you're going to have sympathy to competition and markets in in many situations. I think that is definitely true, and that certainly has been true in one of the distinguishing features of Chicago economic thought. Um, and again, not everybody at Chicago, but what is best known about Chicago. And and what what are the the flaws in government? And regulation in comparison to the market. What 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 is the the problem there? Yeah. Well, obviously, we need government to for various issues, and the markets can't handle issues like defense, crime, um, infrastructure, various types, uh, providing a floor for the very unfortunate. So, the market can't handle those problems. Um, uh, and you need government. But the problem with government, and why I, I tend to believe in small government, is that you, you have very imperfect competition in government. Yes, we have elections, but it's a, it's a much uh, um, blunter instrument than the elections, kind of elections we have in the private sector, where uh, consumers are voting with their feet. They don't like the product. They go someplace else, and people can enter in, and you have a, you know, a entry and exit of a lot of different companies in, in most industries. Um, you don't have that in the political sector, um, and so um, the second issue you don't have, that's a problem in the political sector. You have interest groups that greatly influence the political outcomes. So you have the oil companies who don't want carbon taxes, for example, and so they're very powerful in, in the Washington debate on this. You have edu higher education institutions that are pushing for more subsidies for higher education, and so they're an interest group uh, as well. So uh, it's buffeted by interest groups, and the powerful interest groups will get their way, and uh, you have much less of that when you go to a market system. So I think there are some really fundamental defects in government. Government is necessary. You couldn't have a, a humane or a, uh, a productive society without a, a government. On the other hand, um, when government overreaches, which I think it often does, I think you get a, a less desirable outcomes. Uh, let, let's apply this analysis to understanding the, the 2008 uh, global economic crisis. 
So talk a little about the the factors that led to the crisis. And, and, and is this a case of a failure of the market or a failure of government regulation or both? Both, I would say. Let me try to explain why. I would say there are three major factors that contributed to the crisis. One, bad policies by the Federal Reserve, which I will treat as government. I mean, it's nominally independent, but it's basically a government institution. Uh, excessively low interest rates uh, through 2004, 5, 6, 7, that encouraged um, increase in asset values, borrowing, and so on. So I think that was one important factor. A second important factor was uh, uh, very bad regulatory and governmental activity. Uh, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, who were supporting a lot of highly risky loans, even when people were warning them that it was risky, regulators who overlooked some of the excesses in the private sector. And the third was the private sector in, in, uh, in the financial sector who were uh, taking on risk that they were greatly underestimating the magnitude of the risk they were taking on because of imperfect models and imperfect understanding, I think, including in, imperfect understanding by academics of the, what we call systemic or aggregate risk in the economy that was uh, being created, um, even though we had derivatives and modern tools that were supposed to help us um, handle risk, these tools were not effective when everybody was kind of doing something similar. I mean, that's a crude way of putting it. So these are three forces, not necessarily in order of importance. I think the market, I'm not, I'm not going to say the market wasn't a significant factor, failures in the market in, in this area, but there was also failure of government, uh, and a significant failure of government. I think if you didn't have failure of government, you wouldn't have had the crisis. You didn't have failure of the market, you wouldn't have had the crisis. The combination really made it into a severe crisis. And, and what about then compare the, the, the response to the crisis uh, and, and the kind of government policies we got and, and uh, whatever capacity was for the market to, to correct itself? Well, I think some of the early responses were important by the Federal Reserve and so on, making money more loosely available, what's called QE1, um, giving banks excess reserves. Um, when we had the crisis in 2008, September 2008, when Lehman Brothers um, uh, was allowed to go on to, uh, for a short period of time, risk measures of risk went through the roof. And, and the Fed, I think, and, and, and the federal government helped, helped, helped with that. So I think the government was important in, in, in the early stages. I think ultimately, however, um, there was uh, government made some serious mistakes. Um, uh, I think the stimulus package, to my reading of the evidence, there's still a lot of controversy among economists on this, was a failure. It was a billion, close to a, a trillion dollars. Um, was a failure. A lot of the other spending, I think, was a, a, a increase in spending was a failure. The QE2 and QE3, I'd have to be convinced that was uh, effective. So um, I think government was essential in responding to the crisis. And I think uh, you can criticize some of it, but I think on the whole, it was it, the responses were, were good. I think, however, um, some of them went too far, and I think uh, some of the Fed policies, in my judgment, went too far, although there's a lot of controversy over that, and maybe I'm, I'm open easily to the view that maybe I'm wrong about that. 
But um, that's that's how I would interpret the responses so far. Uh, how does economic analysis make a difference in in policy? How does it affect policy? I know that that in in the latter part of your career, you have really focused on writing for Business Week, a column for many years, and now uh, a, bra- a, a blog uh, with Professor Posner, you know, in the Chicago Law School. Do, do ideas matter? You must believe that. And, and, and theory can affect practice. But, but w- w- what is your thinking about how that comes about? Well, I don't think it's easy I, I, no question, I believe ideas matter. And that to understand how policies will work, make a difference, and, and suggestions for new policies. On the other hand, I felt for a long time that just because one has a good, you can point out some flaws in a particular policy and have reasonable suggestions about how to change it, that policies will change quickly because, as I mentioned earlier, there are a lot of special interests. We, the, most of the policies we get are not there by accident. They're there because some people want these policies. Now, that may not be contributing to the general welfare, but it certainly will be contributing to the welfare of the particular groups that are wanting it. And, and therefore, when you come up with changing those policies, you have to fight against those interest groups. And often the political parties, both parties, are dependent on on those interests and not willing to make that fight. So my view of of ideas and public policy is ideas matter, but you have to be patient. It sometimes takes a long time. Look, I wrote a paper, I'll give you an example from my own experience. In 1957, I spent a summer at Rand Corporation um, down in Santa Monica. I wrote a paper, a case against the draft, saying we should go to an all-voluntary army. Rand didn't like it because they were then entirely supported by the Air Force, who were getting a lot of people avoiding the draft by enlisting in the Air Force. So they didn't want to publish it as part of their publication. And I looked at it and I said, I think I'm right, but I'm never going to see this in reality. So I put it in the drawer. Um, 20 years, less than 20 years later, as a result of the Vietnam War and the great opposition to the draft, uh, some of that centered here at Berkeley, but a great opposition to the draft. Uh, President Nixon set up a, a committee on uh, considering uh, the voluntary army. Big battles in that commission. Milton Friedman was the hero of that commission, and they finally voted to go to a voluntary army. And, and Nixon then uh, eliminated the draft. And there's been very little incentive in the United States since then, or pressure to go back. So uh, I was wrong. It, it took a while. But it didn't take, I thought it would never happen. It did happen. Uh, so what I think is true when you think about policy and ideas, people may have good ideas about particular subjects and, and, and that will change policy in a positive direction. When those ideas will be implemented will depend a lot on the circumstances that arise. When the re- regular system is running into more and more difficulties, like the regulation of the airlines, or trucking. In the 70s, that ran into a lot of difficulty. It was becoming more and more inefficient. And eventually, Carter, President Carter, uh, really did away with it. It was not, not a Republican, it was a Democrat who did away with it, under, partly under the pressure of some economists, to be sure, but other people as well. So ideas get implemented politically when circumstances change, when the old pressure groups begin to lose power because they're causing too much 
disruption and, and losses in the system. That's my view of the, how ideas operate and influence policy. And, and this really helps us understand the, the influence of the Chicago School in a way, because, in other words, a lot of ideas being generated, but it was only when uh, the po- general political si- si- situation changed when there was stagnation and so on, which opened up uh, the opportunity for the ideas being seized. Absolutely. A lot of the Chicago ideas got implemented finally, um, but it took a while, but the opportunities changed, and, the, and then people seized on it. They saw, uh, these, so the value of ideas, you have an idea out there. Things get bad, whether it's Social Security or whatever it may be, and then some people see politicians or the or think tanks see or so on. Well, here's this idea. It seems pretty reasonable now that we're facing this problem. That's when I think they have they begin to have their influence. Mm-hmm. You you you've uh, contributed greatly to the old journalism. You wrote a column for Newsweek for many years. Now you're part of the new journalism, and, and I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are on the communication revolution, and the extent to which, because markets really are about information, right, and, and uh, uh, disciplining individual choices as they acquire more and more. But what, what is your perspective on the implications of this revolution in, in communication, both in terms of the response to your blog, but also the way arguments that previously between you and Posner might have been in a seminar, which 30 people were attending, but, but now out on the Internet. Well, I think the Internet has been uh, and will continue to be an enormous revolution in communication and many other, many other things, but certainly in communication. Uh, the Internet is like a huge market, <laughs> competitive market out there. A lot of bad ideas or stupid ideas competing against, you know, uh, good ideas and so on, and people are discussing it, and and uh, people are informal, and they're calling these guys idiots and curse words and and so on. You know, that is a really, it's like a bazaar, free-for-all bazaar. I think it's great. Um, um, and, you know, you can go crazy following things on the Internet, and I, I, I don't read that many blogs, to tell you the truth, uh, but I, I do a, you know, research on the Internet and so on. But I think it's, 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 it's just changing enormously the nature of communication. Now, there are some downsides to it. The great value of the great newspapers, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and Washington Post, and so on, was they, you know, they stood behind a product, and um, they weren't always right by any means, and they had points of view that we, we may disagree with, but they stood behind a product. They did investigative journalism. They, 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 they came up with very interesting things at times. Uh, the Internet is still searching to see if they can find that kind of you know, certification of the product, um, and we'll get it. I think we'll get it on the Internet. Uh, maybe there'll be some conglomerate of different uh, blog that somebody will be, uh, you know, uh, gain a reputation that the, uh, people who are writing for this are not talking nonsense and so on. Uh, but that's what the Internet is still searching for. But I think it's been an enormously positive revolution. Uh, it's impossible nowadays for people to be as ignorant of the world as they were in the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union basically blocked almost all contact with the outside world. You can't do that in China. Uh, 
even North Korea, I don't know North Korea that well, but it's, it's difficult for North Korea to, to block it. And that's because of the internet. I mean, and um, I think, you know, you go to China and you talk to people there when censorship, oh yeah, the censorship, they say, but we have a piece of software. I remember one graduate student was done. We have a piece of software made by an American company, which we uh, put put in, into our computers and so on. And then we can bypass and go through Hong Kong. Well, I mean, you know, the, the government censors in the Chinese government keep trying to, or in Iran or in any other countries that are censoring, try to overcome that. But the internet is too smart. Uh, they'll find other ways. So I think that. I think that's been a tremendous revolution in communication. One of the bum raps maybe that the Chicago school gets was is that uh, when, when you look at some of the, the major difficulties in our society, uh, poverty, crime, whatever, that, that in other words, you, the argument is made, well, you need uh, to, to, to have government intervene to solve these problems and that the the assumptions of the Chicago school lead to to a more hands-off approach. Is that a fair criticism and, and, and how do you respond to that? Well, it's not a fair criticism. I mean, you know, it's, it's in general because the Chicago school are not anarchists. They believe that government has an important role. I mentioned a few uh, important aspects before. Crime, for sure, you need, you, you need the government. Um, poverty it certainly is an important role of government. On the other hand, and this is where the, the Chicago School maybe take a different view. The Chicago School says, well, if you give people too much incentive not to work, they won't work. And that's not good for them psychologically, but certainly not good for, them, for, for, for the economy. So the Chicago School says, yes, government can be important in, in a safety net, but you have to be careful how you do that because poor people, because they're poor, doesn't mean they're stupid, that they don't respond to incentives. Um, I, I think the Chicago school, or I'll speak for myself, my thinking, but I think also of Milton Friedman, gives poorer people more credit than a lot of uh, people who take a different point of view. They say, well, they, they know that. You know, we may not know about punishment of crime, but you ask somebody who's living in an area with a lot of crime, they know much better than we know what it is. And they know, you know, what they have to do to uh, be able to get a payment for something else. You've you, you got to design a, a program helping poverty people who are poor that takes account of the fact that they're going to respond to that in various ways. That doesn't mean you don't want to do anything, uh, but it means you may want to do something. And the other point of the Chicago School is the best cure for poverty overall is economic growth. And, you, and therefore, if you can promote economic growth in society, you'll end a lot of poverty. So China took two or three hundred million people out of poverty, not because the government did anything very sensible. It's because the government took its hands off of, of the private sector and let the private sector uh, boom. And that's where you got most of the boom in China, in the private sector. And similarly for India when it started its reform in 1991. So um, economic growth is, is a powerful um, uh, poverty cure. Not perfect. And so there'll be people who fall through the crack. You may have to, you want to help these people. I agree. But 
if you ask what's the best approach to poverty, I say you promote economic growth in, in, in different parts of the world, particularly where there's real poverty, and you'll see a, a great reduction in the amount of poverty. Well, one final question. Uh, how would you advise students to prepare for the future, L reflecting back on, on your career, whether they want to do economics or, or policy or whatever? Well, I say there are two ingredients in choosing what to do if you're a student. Uh, I was just speaking to my grandson, and I was telling him this. Uh, two ingredients. I say there are a lot of good colleges to go to in the, in the United States. People say they have to get into Berkeley. They have to get into Chicago. They have, you know, there are a lot of good places to study. Uh, but two ingredients. You should do something you like, and you should do something you're good at. And if you can find something that combines those two fields, that's the greatest uh, predictor that you're going to be not satisfied and pretty successful at the field. So I don't have any specific advice. I don't care if you know, they go into economics, they go into literature. But those are the two criteria I, I think are important, and that's the main advice I would give. I don't try to predict what fields are going to be significant in the future. I let futurologists do that. But... If, you, if people pick things they like and pick things they're good at, I think they're very likely to be satisfied ultimately with what they are doing in their life. Well, on that note, uh, Professor Becker, I want to uh, thank you very much for taking uh, this time to be on our program and, and reflect on your extraordinary career. Thank, thank you, you very, very much. much. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.